0: Jeremiah chapter 32 and uh, verses uh, 16 to
1: 25. After I had given the purchase deed to Baruch son of Noriah, I prayed to Adonai saying, Ah, my Lord Adonai, behold, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. You are the one doing mercy to thousands, but repaying the iniquities of the fathers into the lap of their children after them. Great, mighty God, Adonai Zveot is his name, great in counsel and mighty in deed, whose eyes are open to all the ways of the children of men, to give each one according to his ways and according to the fruit of his deeds. You set signs and wonders in the land of Egypt and even to this day in Israel and among mankind and made yourself a name as to this day. You brought your people Israel out of the land of Egypt with signs and wonders, with a strong hand and an outstretched arm and with great terror. You gave them this land which you swore to their fathers to give them, a land flowing with milk and honey. They came in and possessed it but they did not obey your voice nor walk in your Torah. They have done nothing of all you commanded them to do. Therefore, you caused all this evil to fall on them. Look, the siege ramps have just come up to the city to take it. The city has been handed over to the Chaldeans fighting against it because of the sword, the famine, and the pestilence. What you have spoken has happened. Here it is. You see it. Yet you said to me, my lord Adonai, buy for yourself the field for money, and call in witnesses, even as the city is handed over to the Chaldeans. The word of the Lord.
0: Thank you. By the way, if you uh, come up and uh, see what look like blood-shot eyes. Uh, No, I'm not drunk, and I don't have Pink eye, and so if you're inclined to give a hug and receive one, you're safe. On that profound note, I want to pause and ask the Lord's blessing. Thank you, Lord God, for this stretching word that you give us. And we pray, Lord God, for each one of us to hear and receive. By faith, what it is that you've been saying uh, all along, and especially at this point, pray that you would speak to us, Lord, and uh, give us ears to hear in Yeshua's name. Amen. I read an article in a uh, Jewish online magazine called The Tablet, uh, marking 150th uh, anniversary of um, the arrival of 157 American Christians uh, at the port of Yafur or Jaffa, this was in 1866, right around this time of year, and uh, they came from Maine. They were excited about the prospect of helping the European Jews who were then beginning to emigrate um, to to what was then Palestine or. Um, the province of Syria under the Turks, and these uh, immigrants came uh, to settle and to farm and so on, and these American Christians saw um, their own coming to Israel or um, as an opportunity to participate in the fulfillment of biblical prophecy, uh, which speaks about uh, Israel coming back to the land, God gathering the people back to the land. And they had made the connection between the people of Israel coming back to the land and the imminent coming of Yeshua. So they were stoked about it and um, the ship was packed with all kinds of good things um, and they were planning to build an American colony in Yafo. But after a couple of years, because of disease and homesickness, and they had some issues, leadership issues, um, the, most of the group ended up returning back to Maine. And so this was considered to be uh, a disaster. In fact, Mark Twain, in, in his book called Innocence uh, Abroad, which was basically a travelogue, I refer to this as a complete fiasco. Um, what's intriguing is now 150 years later, this American colony has come back to life. Part of the picture is you may know that Tel Aviv has um, has become um, has grown tremendously. There's been a great deal of Pressure uh, on land, and so people have begun to move into this area that had been run down, and this area has become uh, quote unquote gentrified. In other words, people have come in, bought run down uh, property, and uh, have rebuilt it. But what's interesting is that along with that, there has been a renewed interest in the story of these. American Christian settlers, and there is a desire on people's part to honor their memory. In fact, they had built a museum on that property. Part of the picture is that people have begun to realize that these American Christians were a model to the early Zionist pilgrims that came to Israel. uh, Because they gave them an example of, of hope and and they, uh, they saw them as being gutsy. In fact, one Hebrew-language newspaper made the following statement. How long should we, referring to Jewish people, stand aside and not learn from the non-Jews? You talk about being provoked to jealousy in, in somewhat of a different sense. By, over a period of time... Um, This American colony, as I mentioned, uh, had become deteriorated, and uh, it was populated by poor people and fringe elements of Israeli society, which, according to the writer of this um, article, included Messianic Jews. Isn't it nice to be referred to as fringe element? It just so happened that our particular family uh, worshipped in a small congregation not very far from there um, in the 50s and 60s. And at the time of course I knew nothing uh, of this American colony in the story. But as I read the story I was intrigued um, simply because this is one example of Believers And these folks were not Christian only in, 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 uh, in name, they were uh, solid believers. And um, it, it also reminded me of the fact that our current reality, the facts on the ground as we see it, isn't always right on the money as far as God is concerned, because His reality more often than not, is different than our version of reality. It certainly applies to us in the 21st century, and um, definitely the case during the time of Jeremiah. Now, as you read the story of Jeremiah, the entire chapter, you don't need a whole lot of sanctified imagination. Uh, This is a pretty dramatic portion of Scripture, and i just would like to be able to tease out some of the uh germane some of the uh, essential details um as the passage mentioned the babylonians are tightening the noose around jerusalem at this point um they had um they had come and taken uh there've been a couple of waves of exile before Jeremiah's time here, one of those of course was Daniel, the other one was Ezekiel, and uh, this looks like this time the Babylonians are serious, they're coming in for a kill. And Jeremiah himself is an old man, possibly in the 60s or 70s, and he had been prophesying for 50 years at this point telling people what they did not want to hear, including having to deal with counter-prophets, prophets prophets who would stand up and say, don't listen to this old fool. Um, This is not what God is saying. This is what God is saying. And um, part of the picture was that Jeremiah was considered to be very defeatist and unpatriotic because his message at this point was give up to the Babylonians. You can imagine from their perspective this was tough stuff. And, and uh, so you can understand why the godless king Zedekiah who was ruling at that time didn't particularly care for Jeremiah. There were times when he kind of went back and forth and back and forth there were times he wanted to listen, then there were times he had Jeremiah come in and he had uh, Jeremiah's prophecy read to him. And then he would take a knife and slice the scroll upon which the prophecy was read. And uh, Jeremiah stated uh, a message it was hard for the king to, to embrace. This is what the Lord said, I'm about to hand the city over to the king of Babylon and he will capture it. Zedekiah, the king of Judah, will not escape out of the hands of the Babylonians, but he will certainly be handed over to the king of Babylon and will speak with him face to face and will see him with his own eyes. He will take Zedekiah uh, uh, to Babylon where he will remain until I deal with him, declares the Lord If you fight against the Babylonians, you will not succeed. Now, Jeremiah is under house arrest. He is in the courtyard of the king's guard. And he's speaking to a number of people who had heard Jeremiah talk from time to time. And um, then Jeremiah, uh, I just read to you from verses 1 to 3, Jeremiah then continues in recounting the story of what had taken place uh, leading up to the prayer uh, that that uh, Kate read to us. And um, let me read to you the message that he is recounting and telling all the people who are there in front of him. The word of the Lord came to me, Hananel, the son of Shalom, your uncle, is going to come to you and say, Buy my field at Anatot. Anatot, by the way, was Jeremiah's hometown, uh, three and some miles northeast of Jerusalem. Then, just as the Lord had said, excuse me, uh, because as a nearest relative, it is your right and duty to buy it. Then, just as the Lord had said, my cousin Hananel. Came to me in the courtyard of the court and said, "Buy my field at Hanatot, in the territory of Benjamin, since it is your right to redeem it and possess it by it for yourself." Now, under normal circumstances, this would have been a perfectly sensible act to uh, for for Jeremiah to perform. This is spelled out in the Torah that land should not um should not be transferred out of a given family but should remain in, in a given family and and that's where the notion of goel or kinsman redeemer which we see in the book of Ruth which included by the way also in Ruth's case uh marrying the widow as well as purchasing the territory so under normal circumstances this would have been perfectly okay but in this case It was completely insane. Why? Again, the Babylonians are surrounding the city. Uh, The property is outside of Jerusalem in the grasp of the Babylonians. And um, Jeremiah was not married, did not have kids. And when he died, um, this property would not would not go to anybody. In fact, uh, real soon this would come to the Babylonians. And, um, and so it, it was insane from the perspective of the people who were standing there listening. But as you read the prophets, what you realize over and over again is that God asked the prophets to do things that we would consider crazy. Things that are over the top, kind of mishugi. Why? Because the people had become so so indifferent that God had to use extreme measures almost to shock them into reality and say, wake up and smell the coffee. And so this is part of uh, what God was asking Jeremiah to do. And Jeremiah recognized that this was really God speaking to him that it wasn't last night's pizza. Uh, But you kind of get the impression when he first... When God somehow communicates the message to him that his instinctive thought is to say, Huh? You said what? And then take 30 seconds or so and then say, Okay, I get it. So Jeremiah goes and gets it. Uh, Excuse me, goes and purchases the land, um, and does it exactly as it was spelled out. Uh, You had to have witnesses, and it had to be uh, written down, and uh, the witnesses would sign, just like you do with other legal documents, such as a wedding certificate or marriage. And uh, so, at least in my... If I were in Jeremiah's shoes... I would have been quite content to have this little tiny ceremony to sign it quickly and then scoot over. But no, part of the message was was not just to do the action itself, but to have a prophetic word that would go along with it. And this is something that you see with all the prophets. You have actions that are designed to capture people's attention, and then you have words or prof- prophetic words that go along with it to convey the message. And Jeremiah then continues after the ceremony was complete and said, This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, said. By the way, the phrase Lord Almighty is Adonai Tzvaot, kinda tough for us to pronounce it in English. Comes from a Hebrew word tsava, which means army, which literally means. He is the commander-in-chief of the armies of heaven. Um, sometimes, this trans, in this case, it's translated as the Lord Almighty. But you understand that if he is the commander-in-chief of all the armies of heaven, then, of course, he would be the, the Lord Almighty. If you remember the story of the Assyrians that uh, came around to uh, surround Jerusalem, and at night, one angel went out, one angel went out and killed 187,000 Assyrians. So if that's what one angel can do, just imagine, do the math, multiply that times legions, which means thousands and tens of thousands of angels. So why does Jeremiah mention this particular name of God uh, as he makes this prophetic declaration? Because part of the message is to communicate to the people and particularly to the king who was within earshot that even though the commander-in-chief of the Babylonian army was very close, that what was taking place was under God's rule. Jeremiah continues, Take these documents, both a sealed and unsealed copies, of the deed of the purchase and put them in a clay jar so that they will last for a long time. This is what the Lord Almighty, again Adonai Tzvaot, the God of Israel, says, Houses, fields, and vineyards will again be bought in this land. Now think of the dramatic implication of what Jeremiah is saying here. The Babylonians are about to break through the walls of the city of Jerusalem. Jeremiah takes good money, gives it to his relative, and doesn't just do that, but he makes this proclamation based on what God had said to him, saying, yeah, you see what's going on right now, the facts on the ground, but here's what God has to say about this situation. There will come a time when houses, vineyards, and fields will be bought in other words, there will be a restoration. And Jeremiah isn't saying this based on his, on his prog- prognostication. It's not, well, you know, if you were to uh, put uh, column A and column B, and if you were to uh, figure out the probabilities and do little statistics, then it's possible that within some period of time there would be a restoration. No, he is making a very clear, definitive statement that there will be a restoration. Yes, Nebuchadnezzar is the one who controls it as far as facts on the ground, but the one who really controls and moves the affair of people is not Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian king, but God himself. And part of what is implied in, in a nutshell here is first of all the fact that God is solidly committed to the nation of Israel. That despite what's happening, God has a plan for the people of Israel. And he's very much committed to this little piece of real estate. And we'll see the fuller implication of that. So part of the take-home message, which we'll extrapolate from in, in greater detail, in just a bit, is simply the fact that we tend to be focused on what we can see and hear, and and sense with our senses. And that for us is absolute reality. We see absolutely nothing beyond that. And obviously, we have to deal with the facts on the ground; otherwise, they will take us away in in a truck and put us someplace with all kinds of people who are somewhat deranged. However, what the Word of God does for us is it challenges us to be able to look beyond the facts on the ground and give credence to the fact that God is greater than the facts on the ground and that He is doing things invisibly that we can't see and discern at this point, but at some point they will become visible to us and we'll be able to see what God has been doing all along. Because reality is, scripturally, is that God is always at work according to his plan and strategy. We're mostly oblivious to that because we are consumed with our own plan and strategy. But this is part of the take-home message for us in in this passage That God is at work according to his plan and purpose. And we have to be discerning and say, God, open my eyes. Open my eyes to see beyond what's happening right in front of my face so that I can see what it is that you're doing so that I can engage in it, participate in the work of your kingdom. And at some point that comes flooding into our brain so that we realize that life is not merely about what you and I do but the essence of life is really about what God does and then once we discern that then how we learn to participate and do our portion in it so Jeremiah obeys and, uh, and he not only obeys, but then he engages in this awesome, one of the greatest prayers that we see in all of scriptures. In fact, as you, as you look at the verses that uh, Kate read to us, you will see that this prayer is in lots of ways very much like the prayer that Yeshua taught his disciples to pray, which is erroneously called the Lord's Prayer. But if you look at the Lord's Prayer, you look at what Jeremiah is praying here, his portion of it is way, 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 way down the list. His focus is first of all about who God is. And he begins with eight verses that focus on on how awesome God is. And then only one little verse at the end where he talks about his own particular struggle. And I'm not going to go through all of the statements that Jeremiah makes, but part of what jumped out at me is a simple fact that you might say, okay, that's a no-brainer. Well, is it? Jeremiah is clearly a man of prayer. Why do I say that? Folks, you listen to people pray and something jumps out at you. you. You know one or two facts. You say either these folks are praying people they know how to pray in other words they invest their life in prayer or you say these people really are not praying people because what comes out is very shallow very pablum and clearly indicative of the fact that they really don't spend a whole lot of time praying seeking god other than lord i'm i'm struggling i i'm needy help 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 and etc Jeremiah is clearly a man of deep prayer. What also jumps out at you is the thoughts that he articulates. Now, again, I I read this a number of times, and then this last time it just kind of jumped out and hit me. Where do all these thoughts and ideas in Jeremiah's prayer come from? Uh, Was that part of a download an absolute instant download from God at that that particular moment? It really wasn't, folks. As you read the prayer carefully, what you'll see is that there are phrases in this prayer that come from other places in Scripture. Particularly the Torah, uh, the, the, the Ten Commandments. You show love to thousands and bring punishment of the father's son's to their children after them that comes straight straight from the ten commandments the the ten words where Jeremiah speaks about the Lord acting with strong hand and with outstretched elbow where does that come from that also comes from exodus Exodus chapter six where God is predicting that he is going to reach in there and grab the people of Israel and bring them out of bondage and bring them into into a good land, a land flowing with milk and honey. That also is part of what Jeremiah studied. And by the way, we know from the beginning of Jeremiah that he came from a priestly family. What was one of the jobs of the priestly family? It was to communicate the Torah to the rest of the people. So we know even in the depths of depravity, the spiritual depravity that that Jeremiah was dealing with, his family taught him the word of God. And he learned and he became a man of the word of God. Because you see other references, for example, to Psalm 118, Psalm 145. So, Jeremiah's family was an oasis in the middle of great spiritual depravity. And so part of the picture, another take-home message for us, is simply this. We long to hear from God, don't we? We want God to speak to us and, and, and say, okay, this is what you need to be doing, and no, you're way over here, you need to go in this direction. I mean, that's, in essence, what a cult is about. That people long for knowledge and people long for power. And God is eager to give both the knowledge and the power to those who seek him. But it has to be his way. So what is part of the process? Part of the process is that we are conditioned or preconditioned to hear from God as we marinate our minds in the word of God as we learn to soak our mind in the word of God and we become sensitized to what God says when he speaks and we're able to discern God's voice from the baloney and other loud and objectionable noises that we hear all around us. Jeremiah clearly was in tune with God's heart so when God spoke to him, he understood that really was, that what he was hearing was really from God. In this very, very, very difficult situation. And part of what Jeremiah states to God is, Lord, nothing is impossible with you. Now think about the implication of that. He is, again, under house arrest. He's an old man. The Babylonians are about to come and demolish Jerusalem, and, and his statement is, "Nothing is impossible with you." What is he implying? He implying simply that God is in control, even in the situation that seems to be way out of control. At the end of, of his praise and worship of God, he finally says, "Lord." Okay, I know who you are, but you see what's going on, and you ask me to do what? To buy a piece of property? And at some point, the word of God comes to Jeremiah. The Lord speaks to him. He doesn't say, what's the matter with you, idiot? Which is basically the way we would respond in talking to others who seem to be a little slow in the uptake. Verse 27, I am the Lord, the God of all mankind. Is anything too hard for me? What's the implication? The implication is I'm not only the God of Israel, I'm also the God who is involved in the affairs of people, including the Babylonians. I'm not a local God. I'm a universal God. And the people who are clueless are actually tools in my hands. In fact, in chapter 10 of Isaiah, the the Lord makes the following statement. Woe to Assyria, the rod of my hand. In other words, Assyria, the king of Assyria, was thinking that we will do this, this, and that. And the Lord is, is, through Isaiah, saying, you're actually a tool in my hand to accomplish what it is that I have in mind. Part of the message that the Lord responds in this last part of the chapter is what seems to be nothing but anger. We see four different Hebrew words for anger uh, in verses 28 to 35. And each one of them is very graphic. Uh, You know, we've been hearing that one of the words has to do with God's nostrils flaring. Um, But one of the words that is repeated here three times has the sense of provoking God. In other words, trying to poke God in the eye to make him angry. Now you think about the implications of that. How stupid can a person get to poke somebody, to poke God in the eye and try to get a rise out of him in a sense? And that's how God is describing what the people of Israel had done for centuries, for centuries, folks. And we need to remember that anger often masks a great deal of pain. And that is what the Lord is expressing. And we forget that. You know, people see God's anger expressed in Scripture And all they can see is the angry God of the Old Testament. Well, they don't get the fact that he is incredibly merciful. And he is also incredibly hurt and grieved. So what God is saying to Jeremiah at the end of this chapter, you see what's going on here. And yes, the Babylonians are about to come. And yes, they're going to destroy the city. Why? Because I have given the city to them. In other words, I have released control into the hands of the Babylonians. Again, I am the one who's in control. Yet, I'm not done with my people. My people have not been replaced by anybody. And I have a plan, I will gather them, verse 37, I will gather them, verse 38, I want you to park on verse 38 for just a minute, 32, verse 38, they will be my people and I will be their God. When you come right down to it, folks, that's what, it, what life is all about. It's not the goodies that God gives us, but God is the greatest goody in a sense, being in relationship with him, knowing who he is, being able to understand what what he has for us really gives content to life. And we see this this phrase, they will be my people, is that is something we see with Abrahamic covenant, we see that with the Mosaic Covenant, we're gonna see that with the new covenant. Why? Because that's what God wants to do. He's wanted to do that all the way back from the fall of man at the Garden of Eden. He wanted to repair things. Things were broken. Verse 40, I will make an everlasting covenant with them. Then, through the last few verses he said, I will rejoice in doing good to them over and over and over and over and over again. And you know, folks, we buy such lies. We buy such lies about who God is. We believe that God's intent when he looks down and sees us is the moment we are enjoying life, he wants to snuff it out. Instead of understanding what the word of God really tells us. It is God's desire to do good to his people. And we need to be able to step back at any given time and recognize that reality instead of being consumed with the facts on the ground. And part of the take-home message for me is hopefully some application, some thoughts about how we respond to what we're being barraged with over and over and over and over again the past few weeks, and as we get closer and closer to the election, the pitch is becoming uglier and uglier. And I didn't think that was possible. This, folks, is the ugliest election cycle that I can remember. And what deeply troubles me folks is to see fellow believers diving into the muck and participating in the splashing of muck about this candidate or that candidate. And then justifying it by saying we are bringing out the truth. Or predicting that When he becomes a president or she becomes a president, such and such things will happen. That promote fear on our part. That's fear-mongering, folks. Let's call it for what it is. And reality is that God's people have rarely lived under a friendly regime, a regime that's been friendly to the people of God. And Yeshua tells us that we should not be shocked by that. As we read Scripture from cover to cover, particularly the New Covenant, we see that the people of God were under difficult, difficult circumstances. And we have the silly notion, for some reason, that we, because we are Americans, we should have the the, the right kind of government at any and all times, And that our circumstances should be better than anybody else. And the word of God tells us that because we are part of the kingdom of God, who we are and our values are in basic opposition to the values of the kingdom of this world. That's always been the case. It would always be the case. And so we are called... To live counterculturally. In other words, the world goes this way, we need to go this way. The world swims downstream, we need to go upstream. And when the world is engaged, the society around us is engaged in fear-mongering, we don't dive into it, but we say we live by faith. That regardless of what we think, what kind of garbage is about to happen... That does not define reality for us. What defines reality for us is a basic grasp and conviction that God is firmly in control. Even when things seem to be totally out of control. That God rules in the midst of a situation that seems to be chaotic. I don't know about you, that brings me a great deal of comfort. Because life sometimes is absolutely chaotic and I recognize that God brought life and creation out of chaos. He's still capable of doing that. So our job is not to dive in with everybody else with with all the muck. Our job is to pray. We're explicitly told to intercede for those in authority. We're not told to get on Facebook, or in the newspapers, the internet, or other media and engage in all kinds of junk but rather to honor God with our words and our words not just when we speak them verbally or our words when we engage in other forms of communication. The word of God tells us in Philippians 4, whatever things are true, whatever things are honorable, put your minds on those things. In other words, focus on the values of the kingdom of God and above all, make a commitment to be busy about the Father's Father's business. Yeshua said to us, that was 2,000 years ago, Look out, the fields are white and prepared for harvest. Pray that God would send workers into the field. So, yes, we see things that are disturbing, uncomfortable, confusing. We don't know a month from now who will be the president. But we know a month from now who will be the king. Amen? We can operate with that reality or else make a commitment to be like everybody else and swim like fish that are not real lively. You know what I'm saying? There's obviously a lot more here than than the reality of the election. But at least for me it speaks about the reality of life. And whether we approach it by faith and with courage, or whether we approach it by fear and unbelief, we have a basic choice. Let's pray. We thank you, Lord God, that you, in your infinite wisdom, saw fit to place us here in this place, in this city, in this century, in this country, during this particular time. Thank you, Lord God, that you have put us here for such a time as this. Lord, that you have called us to be your ambassadors. Proclaimers of the good news. That you're able to save. And Lord God, we pray that that will fill our screens. We pray, Lord God, that where we have allowed ourselves to be preoccupied with all kinds of other things that don't belong there, we pray for the ability for us to repent, Lord, to turn and go the other way and pursue your priorities. Pursue your values. Pursue the business of your kingdom, Lord God. And I pray for each one of us, Lord God, for that holy chutzpah where we find ourselves in a situation where we feel besieged. Lord God, that we would recognize first and foremost who is the God of heaven. I pray for each of us, Lord. Cause us to grasp that to live by it to obey you Lord God and do what it is you've called us to do and yes Lord we do pray that you would establish the person that you have in mind for the highest office in this land Lord we uh, we're done trying to microanalyze that we leave that with you pray for wisdom for each one of us as we prepare In a couple of weeks to vote that we will do your will, that we will honor you, that the choices that we make will be made by faith, not in a particular individual, but faith in you. We pray, Lord God, that you would teach us how to honor you in any and all situations. We ask this in the name of Yeshua, our Messiah. Amen.